You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Today. 
3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio at 5.5am on your AM dial, digital radio online on your community radio app. I'm Iris, and thanks for rotations for the previous hour of broadcasting on the 21st of August 2022. So, Queering the Air. We're a queer show, and before I go into the show, I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting over the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nations here in so-called Melbourne or Nam. I'd like to acknowledge that Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded and genocide and colonisation is ongoing. And yeah, it has been a difficult week or so as well with another death in custody in the Disgraceful Victorian prison system, another Aboriginal death in custody, and encourage listeners to support the Jajua Foundation, which provides strategic and coordinated culturally appropriate support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families whose loved ones have died in custody. You can check that out at dhadjowa.com.au. And in terms of today's show, we're going to be talking a bit about housing justice, and it's very related to colonialism and penal stuff as well as many other things. It's really an interesting area in terms of the contradictions of capitalism and colonialism with so many people without houses and many living in precarity. So later in the show, I'll be speaking to two people, Jasmine Bazani and Nick, about Bendigo Street, the 2016 struggle for housing justice that lasted for eight months and exposed the state's organised abandonment of housing with tens of thousands of people houseless amid, amidst many, many more tens of thousands of empty buildings. So we'll be reflecting a bit about that later in this show. But before then, I'm just going to go to a track and we'll be back with Jasmine, you're listening to Querying the Art on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm going to play actually some Beyonce, some Summer Renaissance. Thanks to me. 
that down and we'll go to the interview with Jasmine Bazzani. I'll just put you on. Can you hear me? Hey, hey. Sweet. How's it going? I'm okay. How are you? So I'm good, thanks. Thanks. Cool. Would you like to introduce yourself a bit for listeners? Yeah, sure. So my name is Jazz. I am currently making a film called Bendigo Street. I... I've also been just doing all sorts of different kinds of activism for the past, I don't know, most of my 20s, I guess. I'm about 28 now. Um, I, I'm Kurdish. I am, I don't know, that's it. <laughs> what else do you want me to say? It's hard. It's hard to give a bio about yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I hate introductions. And I did <laughs> notice you have some really good bios that you've got online, but I did leave out reading it all but yeah pretty accomplished and producing a film which is an amazing feat and you just launched this the small version of it last Saturday at the Peer Stories of Homelessness in Nam that also featured the radio series Homeless in Hotels that aired on 3CR about homelessness in the COVID-19 pandemic and listeners should check that out and I'll provide a link if you haven't already before we go into the context of Benio Street a bit more for listeners that might not know, what was it like to be at the launch to bring back a lot of feelings and stuff? Yeah, totally. That's a really good question. It was, oh, I really, my favorite thing actually, I think that encapsulates the whole thing was someone who came up to me afterwards and said how the event was healing. It was really healing, and I that really stuck with me afterwards because, you know, like a lot of people might know, the campaign was really exhausting. It really took its toll, you know. It was something that a lot of us didn't really want to think or talk about for a very long time afterwards, and to have it remembered in such a generative context and in such a joyful convivial context, I think really reminded people the value of the thing that they participated in and being able to be a part of helping people realize that value was like a really, really special, magical thing that I didn't expect to um, have the privilege of experiencing, to be honest. Like I didn't 
I don't know, like, I was so busy just trying to organize things, I didn't even stop to think, like, how are people going to receive this? What are people going to feel? What's this event going to be like, you know? I was just so busy, and to have the event be like that, like, I I feel like it was just really nice and magical, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, for sure. For me, it made me think of a lot about, like, how powerful, like, a direct action thing can be in terms of like fighting for justice and like broader radical change and speaking about Bendigo Street can you bring listeners back to some of the context in 2016 that that where that came about yeah totally so in 2016 a friend of ours she was kicked out of a house that she was squatting in in Nam in Collingwood and that house was owned by the state government, but it was being managed by Magpies Nest, which is a, like, kind of Salvation Army venture. So those guys were given 20 houses that were compulsorily acquired for the East Westlink Highway Project. Uh, they were given those houses to house people who are experiencing homelessness. And it was reported in the media, oh, the government's so great, look at them, they gave these 20 houses to uh, people experiencing homelessness. There was about 300 houses that was in the government's possession that they had because of this highway project that was just now sitting unused and abandoned for up to two years. And then after it was given to Magpie's Nest, it was still left empty and unused, those 20 houses, for a further six months. And so, you know, like, we just did a little bit of digging about the situation, did some research, talked to some people, and we were like, this is really bad. This is really corrupt that the government is just sitting on these empty houses in the middle of a very, very serious housing situation in Melbourne where people cannot afford rent, people are stressed out. There's, like, you know... At that year, there was 247 people who were counted in the CBD as sleeping on the cold concrete, you know, in winter. And there were just 300 empty houses, you know, that could have been given to these people. Anyway, so we were like, let's occupy one of these houses and do a protest, right? That protest ended up lasting eight months, basically. So <laughs> that's the Benigo Street campaign. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um Nothing that, stru- that stru- struck me the other week at the launch was how like many different like communities Benigo Street came like brought together in a, like a real way. Why do you think Benigo Street was able to do that? Is there something about housing and justice that brings together like all like the issues with colonialism and, cap- and capitalism? Yeah, I think the reason that it was able to bring those things together was firstly because of the people who were involved in the campaign secondly because of the nature of housing being such an intersectional issue that really spans across you know everything basically like gender you know um, race like class, like everything that you can think of relates to housing. Um, And yeah, and I think the fact that 
the campaign had something of real substance to offer people who were in immediate need of housing, um, that attracted a certain demographic of people who had up until that point maybe not participated so much in the types of actions and activism that we were doing, which was, I think, the greatest strength of the Bendigo Street campaign, you know, to, to yeah, provide an opportunity for people to be housed, like that people who really needed housing, who were sleeping rough, um, and in that process of providing that opportunity, actually showing people how to get involved in radical direct action. Like, I don't know if that answers your question, but it was a pretty unique thing because of the context of the campaign and, and what its resources and what it had control and power of, I guess, which was housing. Yeah, there's something like very different about direct action in terms of just like protesting on the streets, not directly like in terms of providing material support for housing and how Bendigo Street like involved protesting and providing material support. That yeah, that's something that I guess we can learn a lot from in terms of radical change. I guess. Yeah, fully, totally. Like, I think it is such a powerful thing for a campaign to be able to actually be supporting the people who are participating in the campaign. Like, for me, that's what mutual aid is, right? Like, Mm. that's very, very mutual aid. And I feel like Bendigo Street was, like, such a perfect example of, yeah, people, people doing mutual aid by helping each other get housing whilst also talking about how are we going to resist the state repression, how are we going to make a demand, how are we going to leverage what we've got against the system to get something out of this that is going to be like long-term and valuable, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I guess also thinking about, I was thinking about how there's many like organizations that the state contracts things out for and provides heaps of resources to like the salvos that were given workers were given housing, weren't they? Yeah. That's the, that's the favorite bit of information. I think, uh, to, to folks to know, because I think like, yeah, I just, I don't want to go on too long about it, but basically long story short is that, you know, one of the things that we uncovered during our time living and squatting and occupying Bendigo Street was that these houses that were being, a few of the houses on the street that were being managed by the Salvation Army that had people inside, like that they had actually gotten people to live in, those people had previously worked for the Salvation Army. So they were housing their own workers. And this is such a like important example, I feel, of the problem of social housing, i.e. housing that is run by private organizations that is not the state, because they can discriminate against whoever they choose. They don't have to prioritize people who have been waiting the longest 
they can literally just act however they like, house whoever they think they want to house. And this thing that was going on, which was very, very, very corrupt and really awful, it was never reported on by the mainstream media that was covering the issue constantly for eight months, you know, despite us telling them, hey, you know, this this fact is evident, just go talk to these people, you'll be able to find it out. And unfortunately, the mainstream media doesn't really investigate issues like this with much depth. And we learned that a lot through the campaign. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I know you're you're a radical media maker. What do you see of the challenges of like radical media through film? I think the like there's I see two main challenges: one that comes from within, and one that comes from outside. Like within, the challenge with radical media is consultation, right, and and community care and just making sure that everyone is okay with, you know, consent. Everyone consents. Everyone's okay. Everyone, you know, that this footage is about wants this footage to be about them. And that's a really difficult um, task to do when, especially you're talking about a campaign that involves people who don't have housing, stable housing, because finding these people to get consent from them was a nightmare, first of all. Mm. Um, so that's a really big challenge, I think, because of resources, which I think comes to the second point kind of naturally, which is the struggle from the outside I see is like funding and resources because media is one of those things that like you can't just volunteer really to do it because it's very labor intensive, like very, 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 especially film, which is a medium that incorporates audio, visual, you know, everything, text, everything. It's a very, very, very dense and time-consuming form of art. So the challenge, I think, with getting a lot of really well-produced radical media out there that will actually draw the attention of people is money, basically, and funding and resources, which is why the right is, like, really, I think, in a way, succeeding a lot more with getting their versions of radical media, but the bad kind of radical, the extremist right kind of Mm -hmm. radical, um, they're they're getting a lot out there uh, because of their access to money, basically. Yeah, that is a real thing. And and listeners can go and support the fundraiser for the crowdraiser for Bendigo Street, and you can find it at Bendigo Street. Dot com. There's a link, a support tab there to s- yeah. support. So you're raising at least 20,000. Yeah, totally. Um, so someone the other day actually told me something funny, which I kind of agree with, is that that tab on the website that says support is a little bit confusing and that I should probably change it to donate. Hmm. So just so everyone knows, I'm probably going to change that tab to the word donate on the website. Um, just because it's clearer, but also, yeah, the Documentary Australia Foundation website has a fundraiser going right now at the moment for the Bendigo Street documentary to get it from a 20-minute short documentary to a feature-length 60-minute documentary, and it's $20,000 that we're asking for to be able to get that done. Yeah, 
Yeah, awesome. Another thing with Vandengrove Street is there was a lot of messaging connecting housing and prisons, like housing, not jails, was like one of the banners in front of houses. What what are the what is the relationship for you between housing, prisons, and abolition? Yeah, well, there's like so many ways that these things connect, right? But I think the most obvious thing is like criminalization, you know, and how it leads to destroying people's lives, right? And it and it leads to homelessness. Like the processes of being dragged through the courts and the processes of being convicted for things that have been criminalized through colonialism, you know, through capitalism, through a purposeful wanting to repress and uh, repress and marginalize, you know, varying degrees of other people in order to uphold the protection of white property, which is basically what the law and the legal instruments of this country do. All of that, it destroys people's lives. It really does. And a lot of people who are also people who experience homelessness also are criminalised. Um, we saw that during the COVID-19 pandemic and as the Homeless in Hotels podcast, you know, shows, is that, you know, the criminalization of homelessness leads to carceral solutions and the carceral response um, to, yeah, basically, again, doing all those things that, as an abolitionist critique of the um, the criminal justice, well, you know, the criminal legal system. Mm. Yeah, basically tells us about why these things are being criminalised. Yeah, definitely. And there's a forum coming up on Friday, the Forum for Dwelling Justice, which will provide a link to listeners in the show notes and Benigo Street is being shown there, the short version of it, at, I think, at the Capitol Theatre, the big RMIT place on Swanston Street. So if listeners yeah. want to see it, should definitely check that out. Yeah, um, It's going to be a really cool event, linking a lot of these issues in a much more articulate way than myself. <laughs> but yeah, like if people want to get more involved in Homes Not Prison campaigning specifically, Homes Not Prisons campaign is a very cool campaign to get involved with as well. And they're going to be putting on a protest before the state election and they'll be at the Dwelling Justice event as well on the 26th of August. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, because the last decade or so, like, there was those three years where the Liberals were in power, but it's been mostly the Labor Party and they've invested oh, yeah. records of billions of dollars in policing in prisons. And they still maintain a progressive image. Some people are fooled by this, but it's pretty clear in terms of housing and prisons what materially, like, who Labor supports. They support, like, cops and people... Housing deprivation, which I think was a term you used in in an interview, because, like, the state's actively depriving people of housing. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Sorry, go 
yeah, I think I lost my train of thought where I was going to go with that. But one uh, one thing I was also going to ask you is, what are you hoping that the legacy? I'll start again. What are you hoping as a legacy for Benny Go Street? I really just want to, at a very simple level, inspire people to act and get involved in whatever way they think, you know, they want to act. Like, there's so many different ways that you can. Like, from literally just voting for, you know, the simplest thing, like voting for a party that has a housing platform and has a decastral or abolitionist or um, reducing funding to the prison industrial complex kind of platform. Um, Something as simple as that to you know, getting involved or volunteering like once a week with a grassroots organization that's already fighting for dwelling justice, you know, like Homes Not Prisons or the Rent and Housing Union or getting involved in peer-driven projects that are run by people that are, you know, producing media and information and knowledge from direct, directly from people who have a lived experience of the shit that they're talking about themselves, you know, like so many different things and ways that you can act and get involved. And I think a lot of us, like, who've been doing this kind of thing for a little while, like, you know, you consistently get that feeling in them, you know, which is like, we need more people, you know, like we need more people on our side. We need more people doing stuff. There's just, it just never really feels like there's enough. There's always the same people doing the, you know, same work and being over capacity and getting burnt out and all this stuff. So I would really just like to see an expanded movement um, across all of the different areas of relevance to housing and dwelling justice. Yeah, that would be so great. And <laughs> and also I remember what I was I was going to ask. I didn't find an answer this on answer to this online. But why dwelling justice? in terms of that term, so housing justice? Yeah, so what I understand of the term dwelling justice and maybe other people have a different, um, you know, opinion or a different perspective, but from my understanding, dwelling justice, it encapsulates the Indigenous demand for sovereignty and justice in their homeland and, and the places where they reside right and it Mm. includes it encompasses that right the issue with housing per se in a way is it's invested in a settler colonial futurity right in the sense of okay we want public housing yes like right we definitely all know that public housing is going to be like the number one solution easy direct solution to getting people housed in a way that is affordable, it's long-term, you know? Um, But at the same time, like, we need to not forget that these houses are still going to be occupying Aboriginal land and that that's not the end for justice, uh, for justice of where we call home, right? Because even if all of... Even if everybody had a house, right? Mm. These... uh, it's still not controlled by Aboriginal people, right? It's like this land is still not, so, like, it's not 
yeah, this land is not being controlled and governed by Aboriginal people. We still have a settler colonial government here dictating the rules and telling people what the go is. So I think dwelling justice is really cool, is a really cool concept. And I've like incorporated it in the way that I talk about things. And I hope that it catches on a little bit more and that people start using it because, yeah, I think the way that it intervenes is, is important. Mm. Cool. Thank you for ex- explaining that. What has changed for you in the process of making the film over the last many, many years, six years, I guess, you've been working on it? Um, sorry, what was the question? I didn't catch it because of the audio. Oh, okay, sorry. So it's been a, like a long process making the film. Has anything changed about it in terms of what you saw the film was about or the framing over that time? Oh, yeah, so much has changed. Wow, like, what a great question, but also just trying to work out which which one to to mm-hmm. talk about but i i do i do think that yeah like initially you know so basically you know a little side note from from this story is that back in 20 last year i was arrested on a bunch of indictable offenses so that kind of put a hold on the project for a while um, because I was basically in remand. But, yeah, during that time, something had to change in terms of, yeah, in terms of, I guess, just practically what was going to be possible from then on out in terms of resources and and energy and stuff. Um, So we reduced the film from a 90-minute film um, that was initially going to incorporate incorporate a lot of expert voices as well. And the reason I really wanted to incorporate expert voices was because there was a lot... There was a lot I felt that was politically and historically relevant and important to the story of Bendigo Street in terms of analysis that the interviews that we conducted with the Bendigo Street participants wasn't exactly bringing out or bring to the forefront of the conversation in the film. So I was like, okay, let's like do something which rarely happens in documentary film, which is like, let's do it partial interviews with the Bendigo Street participants and campaigners and activists and homeless people and squatters and rah, rah, rah. And then let's also partially interview a bunch of, and like, you know, kind of experts or something, you know, that could talk to the um, analytic framework. And we've dumped that whole expert uh, idea. And it wasn't only because of getting arrested and then having, like, all of these issues with resources and capacity, but I think it was also a gradual kind of valuing of the analysis brought by people who are directly involved and not needing to feel not needing to feel like that had to be explicitly articulated by these experts coming from the outside, I guess. Yeah. Mm. So that's something that kind of changed. But then, yeah, another thing that kind of changed as well was that concept of dwelling justice, which wasn't a phrase that we were using until it was kind of, until it kind of started to be used more in activist spaces recently. Cool. Thanks for pointing that out. Yeah, it's just some 
Like it's such an involved process and it sounds like you learn so much in the process of doing, making a film and trying to stick to like, like some, some kind of like radical media ethics that is be so different if you didn't have those like values. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And I just, you can kind of see it so much as well when you kind of work with people who they're coming a bit more from a filmmaker perspective rather than coming from a radical media perspective. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting to see the kinds of decisions and the priorities that different kinds of people have, you know? Um, I find a lot with like the filmmakers that aren't like specifically politically orientated. There's just such a focus on like the production and the visual um, yeah, the visual perfection of, you know, every single scene and second, um, which is a constant balance that is, you know, uh, kind of difficult to, to navigate at sometimes when you also want to be highlighting a specific political point in the selection of media and all of that. So it's interesting and it's definitely very cool to work with different kinds of people. Cool. So about time to wrap it up. Any final thoughts or, yeah? Uh, no final thoughts. I just think people should really come to the Dwelling Justice event on the 26th of August, which I know has been plugged so much already by 3CR, but, yeah, I think it would be really great and will give people an opportunity to see the short film and, and decide to support for the feature length if they'd like as well. Cool. Thanks. Thanks, Jasmine, for joining us on Querying the Air. Thank you, Iris. I really appreciate it. Bye. So that was Jasmine Bazzani there speaking about Bendigo Street documentary that she is making and needs more funds. So definitely support that. You're tuned into Querying the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM streaming live at 3cr.org.au, digital radio, online, and on the community radio app. Up next is June Jones, but June Jones's track, If Only, featuring Katie Day.
microwave And if I really must dissociate I'd rather be with my friends at the rave At the rave with my friends at the rave Cause I don't always want to be alone I'm sick of living on the telephone Sometimes I wonder if there's more to life Than what we find inside And this track is if only by June Jones, also featuring Katie Day. Fortunately, gonna to have to wind that down to get on to the next interview. So I'm joined by Nick on the line. Can you hear me, Nick? Yeah. Hey. So I'm inviting Nick on because you were also a participant in Bendigo Street, and I was talking before with Jazz about Bendigo Street and the documentary that she's been making and wanting to turn into a full feature. But before we get into a bit more about Bendigo Street, would you like to talk a bit about yourself, listeners? Um, yeah, I make zines, I make trouble, um, involved in lots of different direct action stuff. Um, yeah, and Bendigo Street was just an extension of, of all of that. I'm... Um, uh, queer, genderqueer, trans femme, um, settler living um, between Wurundjeri land and Aranda country. So, Nick, could you tell us why you got involved in Bendigo Street in 2016? Um, I got involved because I think a lot of us had been um, ready for some kind of direct action to happen around housing that was a bit more substantial. Um, <clears throat> we all know there's a massive housing crisis in Melbourne and Victoria and around the continent um, and really, really a big need for a campaign, um, anything, anything around housing and homelessness at all would be really great. Um, so, yeah, I was, you know, knew, knew the people who were squatting um, around town and was just on the periphery of that when it began. And I just thought, yeah, that's exactly what we need to be doing. Direct action, um, squat these houses, get housing for homeless people um, and make a campaign out of it, make a lot of noise, try and get some, some changes happening. Yeah, cool. One in five young trans people in so-called Australia experience houselessness or otherwise unstable housing. How do you think direct action and things like Bendigo Street should play a part in fighting for housing justice? Yeah, well, I think <clears throat> transgender and gender diverse, gender non-conforming people uh, particularly high risk of um, housing insecurity and homelessness um, as a result of lots of different things like not being able to access some um, waged work or family rejection or lots of different reasons. Um, and things like squatting can um, be a fantastic way to access housing if you're being discriminated against by a real estate agent or if you don't have enough money to... Um, have rent extorted from you. Um, 
squatting can be a fantastic way to do that, particularly if you can get together with a group of people and do it in a collective, organised way, um, which there's many examples of um, and lots of resources out there, um, which, you know, Bendigo Street is one historic example that you can look at um, of, you know, a, a larger group of people getting together and um, we... You know, empty houses are, are a great resource that are out there. Um, there's something like 90,000 empty residential properties in Victoria. There's over a million um, potentially around the continent um, sitting there empty, ready um, to be used. And we know that many of them are owned by property speculators, investment investors. Um, so... What better resource to use if you need if you need a house, and yeah, collectively organising um, with people around you, um, perhaps other um, trans and gender diverse people, other queer people, other marginalised people, um, get together and um, see what what we can do with these empty houses. Mm. So bringing it back to Bendigo Street, what do you see as its legacy? What are your reflections on it six years later? Um, I think I think it was very successful at housing the people who it housed um, at the time. I think it was about eight months. For eight months, there was a number of people... Um, who received housing through this method that was community-controlled by an alliance of different groups, from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria um, to more looser groups of squatting um, in the squatters. Um, And so I think in that sense it was very successful. I think there's lots of lessons to learn about the way that the state will respond when you try and um, collectivise property and try and house people in buildings that are being left empty. And in the case of Bendigo Street, they weren't privately owned residential properties. They were owned by the state government, um, which is running around saying, oh, we don't have enough properties to put on the public housing register and increase the number of public housing properties available, which is just not true. They have heaps of empty properties that are owned by the state government, ostensibly owned by the public, um, by you and I. And why are they being left empty? So um, it really, I think Bendigo Street highlighted that this issue of empty properties isn't just a thing that happens in the private residential market. It also is a thing that state and territory governments do. They leave properties empty. Um, And at the same time, there was a number of homeless encampments um, in Melbourne, in the CBD area, and you've got these things kind of happening simultaneously. So I think it did a relatively good job of connecting the issue of homeless, issues of homelessness, issues of property speculation, the lack of public housing, and making them all quite visible um, and connecting them to the communities in those areas as well, people who lived in the inner Melbourne at the time. Mm. Yeah. 
So we're sort of running out of time, but to end on a note that it, that listeners can sort of imagine for themselves, what is one key moment that you remember about Bendigo Street? Um, I think one of my favourite moments was early on, maybe on the second day when we were squatting, um, occupying an empty state government-owned house, um, and the police came and they had authorization from a state government department of transport representative to say, you, you need to get, get out, we're going to evict you, we might come in and arrest you. And there was just a whole, a huge group of us inside the house saying, no, when we're not going to come out, you're not going to come in and arrest us. This house is now under community control and we're going to use it to um, give people housing. Um, and we called their bluff and the police backed down, the state government backed down, and they didn't come in and arrest us. Um, so that was a big, that was one of many um, wins that we had early on that enabled us to continue to occupy um, and collectivise houses on the street and in other parts of Melbourne. Um, but that never oh. would have happened if people hadn't got together and um, organised collectively and act directly, yep. take control of these houses and put them to use. Cool. Thanks, Nick, for joining me on Queering the Air. Thanks for chatting to me. Bye. You've been listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio. That's all for our show this week. I'm Iris, and you're just listening to Nick speaking about Bendigo Street. I'll go out with Thumber Plum when it rains, it pours.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.